it is with uh, great joy that I come to uh, preach God's word to you this morning. Um, I uh, guess I want to begin with wearing out something that uh, has been rehearsed so much, but we we obviously live in such a troubled, troubled time. And the last three years have, uh, have worn some of us down. So every time I pray Psalm 23, you know, Lord, restore my soul, uh, I, I say it and pray it with great meaning every single day. Uh, I, I think a lot of us are perplexed um, by the events of the day over the last, uh, this era rather, over the last three years particularly, but increasingly so. Uh, it's been a time of unprecedented cultural devolution. We're not getting better. We're not seeing America or the Western world or the world in general grow into some type of utopia. Um, most of the world's in a state of confusion, um, corruption certainly, uh, so one of your, your, your pastors has to stand up here and talk about issue one um, because we, it, it's unfortunate we have to say things like this, but we have to be clear about these things that are an offense to God. But also there's been uh, chaos and just, uh, just downright craziness. I uh, have rehearsed with so many of my dear friends and prayed over the issue that um, up is down and down is up and wrong is right and right is wrong and the world seems on its head, doesn't it? So I, I know that uh, personally I have felt more uncertain. I have felt more insufficient and lacking in confidence that at any previous point in my life. And that's hard for me to admit after um, 40 years in vocational ministry, you know, a pastor likes to think maybe that he has some of these things worked out and uh, that, we're, that I would be beyond some of this consternation and fearfulness and anxiety, but... Uh, I have sensed the shame that comes with uh, a lot of fearfulness and, uh, and some of this uh, sense of a lack of confidence. And I would say, honestly, as I stand before a group of beloved people in the Lord, that every single one of us have felt this uh, to one degree or another. We've all suffered losses too numerous to even begin to rehearse. In just the last couple years, I have lost two of my dearest friends. And just this last winter, my earthly father. Uh, I was here for Carl's service as we paid tribute and, and rejoiced in his life in Christ and yet grieved his loss. Um, so um, these men, they were strong voices. My friends, my dad, Carl, they were strong voices and we grieve their silence. We grieve their silence. And today we are more now than two full weeks 
into an outright war in the Middle East that involves Israel and a level of evil that few of us could even imagine that technology has brought into our living rooms and to our phones. And it's struck a deep nerve, or it should, with all of us. And much closer to home, as has been mentioned and as I have alluded to, challenging illness has threatened the sense of well-being in this beloved body of Christ here at the Oaks. So Psalm 11 asks this question as I pray through that psalm, and I'm a psalms kind of a guy. As a longtime church musician, I have lived in and through the psalms, and I was reading Psalm 11 earlier, and it, it asks this question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then there is that call that comes to us. Flee like a bird to your mountain. I I don't know about you. Maybe some of you have had that feeling of wanting to escape. Of wanting to get loose from where we are. And... uh, I have to admit, in a, it's totally silly, but I was imagining things like selling everything we have, and of course, I didn't say this to my wife. She's gonna, <laughs> she's gonna hear it for the first time this morning. Selling everything we have and going and moving to some mountain somewhere out in the wilderness and living off the land. I don't think I would do very well there. So. What are we to do? Are we just to escape? You know, fleeing to the mountain isn't always literally. Oftentimes it's escaping to, as, as Brother Seth said, too much food or too much drink or too much materialism or losing ourselves in our comfortable group of friends and trying to hide our heads in the sand, so to speak. Am I done already? Oh, I forgot to push this thing too, so. All right, now the timer's on. Okay. So Psalm 16, and you see it in your bulletin listed there, is is a grounding for us this morning, and so much of this service has been so beautifully and carefully crafted. I I think whether, whether it was with real intent around Psalm 16, and I have to believe that it was, there's such agreement in the prayers that I've heard this morning and in the call to worship in Seth's prayer. It's a truth that grounds us and it reminds us that we are not forsaken. We're not forsaken. We're not some little lost forlorn remnant that's out here and forgotten and we can and we should confidently rejoice in our God in fact I would say that in the history of our nation and maybe in 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 your personal history there's never been a more important time for you and I to rejoice in our God in very evident ways So toward that end, let's begin with prayer and then we'll begin to dig in 
to Psalm 16. Our Father, we have heard from your word already this morning in rich ways, and we have been prayed over and with, and we have responded in song, and we are so grateful that you are a firm foundation. You are a rock upon which we can stand. You are a fortress, a shield, and a buckler. You are our gracious God and our Father, and we come to you a needy people, a people who are often filled with anxiety and fearfulness and sadness and loss, and yet we have our hopes and our dreams, and those hopes and dreams ultimately are in someone and something that this world can never offer. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you this morning in and through your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be free to move, that you would keep me from any foolish statements or words. Hide me behind the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would be clearly seen and heard today, that you would move in our midst, that you would speak to each of us and draw us near to you. May we leave in some way changed people. We offer ourselves to you in this service to your honor and glory in Christ's name, amen. Psalm 16. A michtam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now the superscription for these psalms as you may know, now I'm not talking about, for instance, if you're holding a, an ESV um, from Crossway Publishers, it will say, you will not abandon my soul. How many of you have that at the top of this psalm? Yeah. So that's not part of the inspired scripture. However, the little line underneath that is actually part of verse one in the Hebrew. A michtam of David Miktam is a confusing term that has uh, caused 
some disagreement among theologians and linguists. It's a little uncertain. Some uh, define this as a golden poem because it comes from the word ketem or gold in Hebrew, but just by a slight change of that, it can be a different word. It seems that there's more agreement on this, that it's kind of a, a secret prayer. A secret prayer. Prayed in times of threat with covered lips. And when you see this at the beginning of the, of the Psalms that list it, which are this one, Psalm 16, as well as 56 through 60. Those are the Psalms that all have this superscription there. A miktam. When you read them, you see very clearly that there's a threat. Almost as if you are surrounded by a room full of enemies who are seeking your harm. And they're conspiring against you. And so you, you bow your head quickly and you pray, oh God, please help me now. I need your help. Be my portion. Be, be my, my strength. And so it makes sense to me that that's in keeping with the nature of the Psalms that it's aligned with. The Lord is my portion. I'm going to divide this psalm up basically into two big chunks. So we have in verses 1 through 6, the Lord as being my portion. And then beginning with verse 7, we have him as our confidence. Now we could break this down a couple different ways. This is just the way that I chose to kind of structure it. The Lord my portion. Verse 1 here, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Here is a foundational truth for the Christ life. Don't go any further than this without, without wrestling with this, without seeing the importance of it. Preserve me, for in you I take refuge. David cries out in complete trust in God to preserve him. What does Hebrews 11:6 say? Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We can go no further than this. I take refuge in you. You are my portion. I trust you to preserve me. Now there are many people, there are many things that we might place our trust in. All, all of them, no matter how good they may be. And there are many good things. There are many good people that we can look to for help, but all but God will eventually and certainly fail us. By the way, this takes an awful lot of pressure off of the, the other humans in your circle. 
when we recognize that we need to lean on God to preserve us and to find refuge in him rather than to find to put all of our hopes and dreams in any person, no matter how dear they may be to us. So may this be our daily prayer. Would you read aloud as a personal prayer as we begin this psalm, verse one with me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Amen. So, our application from this verse comes in the form of a question here. In what or whom are we placing our trust today? Really? If you were to be absolutely honest and you didn't have to save face in front of anyone else, in who or in what are you really placing your trust today? And can we truly say that we have faith in God? if we look to others to meet our deepest needs. Verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now this is a statement of proper soul alignment. By the way, I see a chiropractor on a daily, on a regular, not a daily basis, a regular basis. I need to be realigned. Things get pinched. I start to hurt. I notice numbness in my hands. My neck begins to hurt some. I get tension in places where I shouldn't have any. And so the chiropractor gently realigns things. This is a soul realignment and it should take place on a daily basis. Why? Because when you and I go out into the world, we get knocked about, don't we? Anybody get knocked about in the last week? Something said to you, done to you, something that you experienced that impacted your soul? This is soul realignment. As we remind ourselves of this truth, Lord, You are my Lord. The government is not my Lord. The military is not my Lord. My doctor is not my Lord. My medications are not my Lord. My job and any other things that we are tempted to place our hope in. You are my Lord. Now, a rightful self-analysis requires the humbling of ourselves before the Lord. You have to humble yourself to do this. It's a natural part of the process. The world system might say that you should be first, that you're of the greatest worth, you can be and do and have anything you put your mind to. The messages are that you and I are basically good people and that we deserve the best that the world can offer. I mean, marketing is built off of that in so many ways. But in Philippians chapter three, and you may want to jot that verse down to meditate on later, in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, it says, indeed, Paul said, I count everything, and this was after he listed all of his earthly and religious accomplishments. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is Paul with his immense pedigree and he's saying all of that means nothing compared to Jesus. Are you weighing things? Should I fully give myself over to the Lord? Is it, can I really trust him if I surrender fully to him? Lord, you are my God. Now, the doctrine of total depravity, which none of us, frankly, we don't, we don't like that. We don't like to talk about it too much. And a lot of people confuse it. That, they think that that means that we're so totally depraved that there's never anything good that comes from us. No, even evil people, people who don't know the Lord as their Savior can do good things. They can love their wives and their husbands and their children. And they can be fruitful in their work. No, what total depravity means is that to the root. We are corrupted. It's a part of our nature. It's infected us. And even when we go to serve the Lord and to do good, and we come in here with the best of intentions on a Sunday morning to worship, there's still that sin tainting, that infection that can cause us to view others around us through a skewed eye or to pass judgment upon a particular song or upon a word that was spoken or just choose not to be around somebody because we're not comfortable around them. You can see how this works itself out in us all the time. None of us is righteous, not a single one. And so as believers, we come this morning and we, we think upon the truth that Jesus taught in John chapter 15 when he said, without me, you can do nothing. Have you really thought on that? How much do we try to achieve in our own energy? especially when it comes to serving God, to doing our daily devotions, to pursuing him, to sharing him with other people. Oh, there's so much of ourselves wrapped up in that. We can get so prideful and anxious about it. Without, without me, Jesus said, you, you can't do anything. By the way, foundationally, this is the bad news, good news of the gospel, isn't it? If we model that we are supremely self-sufficient, and that we can do anything and everything that, that we need to do, what are we modeling to lost people around us? What are we showing them? What are we speaking to them loudly? Well, I mean with a megaphone into their lives. Is that we don't really need Jesus, and Jesus is kind of just a sidebar, or he's a band-aid, or he's, he's an extra. No. Importantly, we notice the life-changing truth of the second half of verse 2, and it's reiterated in David's Psalm 73, 25. By the way, Psalm 16 and Psalm 73, oh, you, you should read those one right, right after the other. There's so much parallel truth in them. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So our application here in verse two, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You will be justified 
if you pray that prayer earnestly. And you'll be helped in Christ far beyond anything that this world can offer. Verse three, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, I, I really camped out in my own heart on this one for a while. Here we see David's delight in the fellowship of the saints. And who are these saints? I'm surprised frequently how many individuals within a, a good Bible preaching church can be confused about sainthood. The saints are all the chosen, the called, the confirmed in Christ. They're the holy ones, the called out ones. And David expressed his love for God's people. What should be our attitude today? In Philippians chapter two, verses one through four, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And how is this lived out here at the Oaks? How is it lived out in any good Bible-believing fellowship of the saints? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18 And then verses 21 through 26, you may want to write those down in your notes, that reference. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. As he chose. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. God has intentionally so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one is honored, all rejoice together. There has to be a growing realization of the essential importance of the brethren in Christ. The brothers and the sisters and our great need for corporate worship, for fellowship, for care, mutual care. This is often one-on-one. Listen, folks, if you wait for a committee to do everything important, you could wait until Jesus comes. And that's not to besmirch any active committee that may be at work in this church or any other church. It's just that large groups of people don't move easily One-on-one, though, we can touch a person beside us or someone that we notice across the room who is deeply in need, who's suffering, who's grieving, who's 
feeling defeated, who comes in dragging in and really the last thing they wanted to do was be here this morning because they knew that this, they know in their heart that they're unworthy and that they failed so much this last week. This is exactly where we need to be. This is exactly where we need to be. We have no right to pass the buck. Can't you say, well, Seth, you're the elder. Go take care of. Well, how many people can Seth take care of? This is a body of Christ issue. And as we dwell on the truth of 1 Corinthians 12, it becomes abundantly clear. Now, as a pastor, most of my greatest heartaches and frustrations have been caused by many who called themselves saints but practically lived with no apparent signs of delight in the Lord's church. They were so casual in their attendance, in their commitment, and in their membership that they, they couldn't practically be relied upon to minister to anyone. Well, I don't really have time to do that. I'm busy or we're gonna be leaving you know, this and that. And listen, I understand that there are those things that arise in our lives. This is not to throw guilt on people that are busy in serving the Lord. But I assure you, the church will never be the light on a hill to the lost and broken people of the world around us in Wayne County if we don't prioritize this local body of Christ. And I would say that in an assembly of any local church that I would have the privilege to be in front of. So what's our application? And by the way, you can search the scriptures. You'll never find a Christianity that lets us off the hook in this regard. Do you have a longing for the Lord's church? Do you greatly look forward to and sense the great need for weekly corporate worship? It might be a teenager who's struggling to find real application to your life by this time together in the morning. I assure you, I promise you, as a young man who trusted Christ in my early, my first year of college, Ed and I were just sharing stories about this this morning before the the worship service. You desperately need what this church will provide you. The grounding, the foundation, the family, the faith expression, you need this. Are you seeking, are you praying for, are you working towards the advancement of this local body in its role of building God's kingdom? This is a rightful delight. Pray for it. Verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The many all around us every day who are on the broad and easy path suffer the sad consequences of multiplied sorrows. Despite many seeming delights and benefits of pursued and acquired gods, these broken people live in slippery places. Becky and I have raised teenagers. They're in their adult years now. But I know And I have kept in touch with my young Eric self to remember that there are many allurements that can draw a young heart away. 
It looks great. Like something you essentially have to have if you're going to succeed in school and in life and in society. But it brings forth terrible fruit. And we live in slippery places when we partake of that. Psalm 73, again, verses 18 and 19 say, Truly, you set them in slippery places, God. You make them fail or fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. After bemoaning the perceived vanity of following God's ways prior to these verses in Psalm 73, David is able to realize this truth about the prosperity of the wicked only after he went into the sanctuary of God, after he went into worship with the saints. And if I can briefly reiterate the truth of verse 3 that I just talked too long about, how are we to recognize, much less reject these false gods if we're not regularly in the fellowship and worship of the saints. Folks, I cannot miss this time with the saints. We must not make any concessions to false gods of the world system. These drink offerings of blood, as they're called here, it's far too easy for us to passively agree with false worshipers by our fear to seem disagreeable. We don't want to embarrass ourselves in front of people around us who might disagree. Or when we politely permit them to invade our homes, our lives, our churches, our schools, our places of business, and on and on. I'm not saying that we should see every occurrence as a hill to die on. Or that we should loudly and angrily protest every evil around us. I mean, we would never have a good word to say. However, have we instead become guilty of losing our Christ-like saltiness and strength of light to the point that there is little discernible difference between God's children and the children of darkness? The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, other than me. Our application is while the full sorrows and terrors of the lost may not be perceived yet, they might be living casually. They're fat, as the Bible says. They're full. They're without problems, it seems. They are yet heaping up these problems in front of them. And yet some of the saddest people, I'll have to say, on the earth are saints who toy with false gods and invoke the language of the damned. We act, we play around with, and we speak like children of darkness. We must return to our first love. Pray for it, ask for it. Verse five, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Opposed to the vain and sorrowful delights of false gods, we must settle. The Lord is my chosen portion. Psalm 73, 26 says, My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's an inferred choice here based in faith. The just shall live by faith, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Let's be honest. We don't always feel like choosing the Lord. But the alternative results in some form of death. The world system might claim eminent domain on my lot. But the Lord himself secures it eternally for me. 
we may be tempted to wish our lot were different or better. But like the Levites, instead of great material possessions, and in their case it was receiving land like their other tribal brethren, the Lord himself is our lot. We might have to live this life without a lot of the creature comforts or the or professional uh, uh, position and uh, all of the accoutrements that come along with that. We might have to live our lives in relative obscurity. But if the Lord is our lot, we are truly wealthy. Rehearse and take stock in the unsearchable riches that you have in Christ Jesus. These are the things that can never be taken from us by anyone or anything. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Nothing can take them away. Verse six, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Godliness with contentment is great gain, Pastor Timothy says. Are we able to recognize that the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places? Even though they may appear to be poorer places than the dazzling places of a lot of the world or around us, these pleasant places of God's children include these things. And these are just a few. Green pastures. Still waters. Righteous paths. A rock upon which we can stand. A fortress in which we can hide. A wing under which we may safely abide and a place prepared for us, a place prepared for us. The world can't offer any of those things. And I can guarantee you when we take our last breath, whenever that may be, we will not be thinking about all the things that the world around us has. We'll be thinking about the delights that we have and the assurances that we have in Christ. Mark 6.33 says all these things, or Matthew rather, 6.33 says all these things will be added to you. Our inheritance is one never to be taken from us and though we may lose much in this life, we are promised to be sealed and kept for the great day of redemption to be forever received into our eternal home prepared by Jesus himself. Look unto Jesus. There's your application, the author and finisher of our faith. Look unto Jesus every day. Secondly, the Lord, my confidence. Verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. There are many sources of counsel. Think how often we've anxiously and frantically sought counsel from anyone who will listen to us. Have you ever done that? You get really anxious and worked up about something and you just run from one person to the next and you're telling anybody who will listen to you, anybody who will stop what your problem is and what you're struggling with and you're looking for some golden nugget, some silver bullet that's gonna solve every problem. So does this usually lead to a greater sense of settled peace? Or instead, does it increase our doubt and our anxiety? David proclaimed his blessing of the Lord. He was committed to bragging on God because he knew from faith in God's character and his promises, as well as from his countless experiences of God's intervention and supply, he knew that God's counsel is always bottom line, rock solid truth. 
Those of you who love the Lord Jesus and have been through the deepest and darkest valleys, you know this to the core of your soul. Derek Kidner says of this verse, there's nothing facile or easy in the divine, okay, sorry, in the divine guidance depicted here, on God's side, it is counsel rather than coercion, and on man's side, the kind of heart searching that may drive away our sleep. Psalm 127.2 said, it's vain that you rise up early, go, to, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Of this verse, Kidner says, it deplores the restlessness when it is mere worry. But the instructs of this verse, the word instructs, here has a purposeful firmness. In other words, even chastening as of schooling one face, uh, one to face hard facts. So the one who sees and knows all things to the smallest detail gives perfect counsel in the day as well as in the fearful, fragile night hours. Verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Because God's counsel is peerless, we can confidently set the Lord always before us. What does this mean? Psalm 119.30 says, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Rather than waiting on lightning bolts from heaven or some other miraculous display, can we not simply trust God's word to rightly represent him to us? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, those familiar verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make straight your paths. By the way, if you doubt the practical application of God's word to your life, I encourage you to spend a little time reading and meditating and praying through Psalm 119. But verse 8 goes on to say that God not only goes before us, he's also at our right hand. Kidner, again, he says this, a person who will stand by one. More specifically, this help might be in court or in battle. Psalm 109 Verse 31 says, he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. And 110 verse 5 says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now the, the direct translation from the Hebrew into English says this, I have Jehovah always before me. For he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Now that seems strange. I have God always before me, for he is at my right hand. Well, which is he? Is he before me or is he at my right hand? He is both. And as I was meditating on this, the Lord gave me this thought. If you have walked with Jesus and you have gotten to know him and you've spent time with him and you've talked to him and you've worshiped him and he's proven himself to you, you have a friend, you have a constant companion. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not, he leads me. Through the dark valley, we have this experience, this experiential knowledge of the Lord. When you learn to trust someone who's been walking beside you, it's a whole lot easier to say, I'm going to trust you to lead the path. You be point man. You go in front of me. You run interference for me, Lord. You light my path. I think that's beautiful. 
It's human to fear. It's human to fear. But with our Lord, we need not be shaken. Verse 9. Therefore, therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. What warmth, what comfort there is in this security. We can even be glad and rejoice. Have you ever been in one of those perfect moments? I mean, it's like everything aligns and you feel so at peace, so blessed, so joyful that it, it causes you to shiver with delight. I can remember some of those kind, some of those times in my own life. Would you, you just know you can relax, you can breathe deeply, you can rest. Everything's okay. That's what I, that's what I believe David is saying here. There's so much warmth and comfort in this security. This is the hope of glory. This is the joy of the Lord being our strength. This, no doubt, is what strengthened the saints like John Hus, who, because of his stand against apostasy, they sent him to the stake and they burned him alive. And what did he do? He sang like a goose. Hus, by the way, means goose. He sang the praises of God as his body was being consumed by the flames. Psalm 131 says, I don't occupy myself with things too great, too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time and forevermore. Our application, be still and know that he is God. Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. We're given assurance of life beyond the grave, surely applicable to David's life when this was written. It meant something when he wrote it, but it also means something to us today. But even more so here, we see a prophetic word concerning Jesus Christ. We know this because Peter quotes this in his day of Pentecost sermon when he quotes this very verse regarding the resurrection of Christ. Now Spurgeon, in, this is a wonderful little book, by the way, the checkbook of the Bank of Faith, he says this, we may descend in spirit very low till we seem to be plunged in the abyss of hell, but we shall not be left there. We may appear to be at death's door in heart, soul, and consciousness, but we cannot remain there. Our inward death as to joy and hope may proceed very far, but it cannot run on to its full consequences so as to reach the utter corruption of black despair. We may go very low, but not lower than the Lord permits. We may stay in the lowest dungeon of doubt for a while, but we shall not perish there. The star of hope is still in the sky when the night is blackest. The Lord will not forget us and hand us over to the enemy. Let us rest in hope. We have to deal with one whose mercy endureth forever. Surely out of death and darkness and despair, we shall yet rise to life, light, and liberty. We're promised by God to be kept and sealed. And that nothing can pluck us from the hand of God. Death 
is swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? And finally, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This verse is a really fine summation of verses seven through 10. It's all wrapped up in there. God is so gracious when we're so dull and often disobedient. He makes his path of life known to us. Have you experienced a time when after a period of doubt or disobedience or both, when you were confused, you were sad and perplexed, and God suddenly, suddenly broke through that darkness when you felt like you were almost unreachable, unreachable, unredeemable, and he sent his word of clarity that lit your path again. When you were powerfully reminded that you never earned any of his goodness, you certainly never earned his salvation to begin with, and that everything that you have is of grace. It's okay to confess and to come and to seek him because he longs for you. Regardless of our circumstances surrounding challenging times, God graciously comes to us, reminding us of his great love, and he works to restore our lives. And finally, once, one, one more time, Gidner finishes us with these thoughts. The path of life is so called, not only because of its goal, but because to walk that way is to live in the true sense of the word already. It leads without a break into God's presence and into eternity. The joys and the pleasures are presented as wholly satisfying and endlessly varied for they are found in both what he is and what he gives. Joys of his face and of his right hand. The refugee of verse one finds himself an heir and his inheritance beyond all imagining and all exploring. Make it your prayerful, dependent aim to avoid the feeble joys of this world. Instead, through all of the difficult and often dark days of our lives, seek the fullness of joy promised by Christ and walk through your days one at a time with him before and beside you all the way home. I want to finish with a Puritan prayer. Actually, it's uh, the editor's prayer from this wonderful little book, The Valley of Vision, if I may, and I'll be done. This is our closing prayer for this message. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the place, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley.